We are standing, or you are sitting, in the presence of a holy God. Do you believe that? We come in together and gather as the saints. We are stepping out of the natural and into the supernatural. And God is present with us everywhere, but there is something special when his saints are gathered together. Do you believe that? Oh, I hope you do. That's great. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, I forgot my water down there and the love of technology and texting. <laughs> I've just trained him so well that he knows when I say a certain word, that means bring me water. And uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm just joking. Uh, what's amazing is that our church has been around for 90 years this year. Isn't that amazing that God has used this church for 90 years here in Drumheller, both in really, really good ways, but also there have been some bad times too. That's just natural. That's what happens when you have a congregation full of sinners who are saved by grace. We make mistakes and cause hurt. But what's amazing about that is that no matter what happens, both good or bad in Fellowship Baptist Church, God is using it to prepare this church for greater ministry. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That God's not done with us here at Fellowship Baptist Church? That we haven't done just enough and now Drumheller is on its own, but he still wants to use us to reach our community, to build disciples in this church, and to bring glory and honor to him. Do you believe that? Good, I'm glad you guys are in a talkative mood today. <laughs> because this week we are going to be talking about Peter's preparation for greater ministry. Uh, last week, we talked about how God used Saul. He prepared Saul for ministry through his conversion and then through his time in Arabia for three years and then back to Damascus and Jerusalem. And God was preparing him for the great ministry that he was about to uh, embark upon. But now in, in verse 32 of chapter 9 of Acts, we start to see God preparing Paul for greater ministry. Yes, Paul has already been active in ministry, just like our church has been for 90 years, but God is now preparing Paul for greater ministry. And I think God is also preparing us for greater outreach into our community, for greater ministry to those who are lost. Now, do you believe that? Yeah. Amen. That's good. I'm glad. What's interesting is that Jesus told our apostles, he told Peter and the other apostles that they would be his witness, and not just them, but his church would be his witness in, in, in Judea, in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the apostles being Jewish had a little bit of an attitude problem, particularly Peter. They had a little bit of an attitude uh, problem, and somehow running that command through their mind, they, they kind of missed the point. Last week, we talked about how we started to see the church wasn't just the church of Jerusalem anymore, but it was of Samaria, Judea, and it was reaching getting close to that next part, the other most parts of the world, but somehow running that command through their Jewish mindset, they were missing the point in thinking, well, the gospel is going to go to wherever the Jews are in the world, right? Because this is about six years after Christ's ascension back to heaven, and the church has remained distinctively Jewish up to this point. But what this part of Acts is showing us is crucial. It's a critical change in where the gospel is going. It's going north, and then it's going to go throughout the whole world. 
In Peter's case, despite all his love and devotion for Christ, his unfortunate attitude, humanly speaking, could have strangled the ministry. And if it wasn't for God being a sovereign God, it could have led to Christianity just being another set of Judaism. God could not allow that. So he had to begin to help Peter to develop a positive and good attitude towards the world, the whole world. And this text has much to say to us as it did to the apostle Peter and the other apostles. The stakes for us today are just as high. How do we here in Fellowship Baptist Church look at those around us? Because how we look at those around us is crucial. And this was the attitude adjustment that Peter needed for the church to extend its reach to the world. Peter needed an adjustment on how he looked at those around him, outside of Jewish bounds. And understandably so. we got to remember that Peter was raised to be a faithful Jew. And the idea of extending the grace of Jesus to the world was countercultural idea that would not only take a mindset change, for Peter, because it's sometimes easy to change our mindset, but it would take a heart change. It would take a change of his heart. Peter was an heir to a strong tradition of prejudice that went all the way back to Abraham. And it exemplified a men like Jonah, who resisted bearing witness to the Gentiles and actually became angry at the end of the book when God spared them and was merciful to them. He was angry that they escaped judgment. Now, we all know somebody who likes seeing people suffer, and that was Jonah, okay? And if that's you, it's time to repent. But We'll examine how God used certain experiences to, do, uh, to change Peter's attitude and heart. We'll do that first by looking at chapters 9:32 to uh, sorry, we'll do that first. I, I, got, I lost my train of thought, but we're going to do that by looking at 9:32 to 10:23. And next week will be a sort of a part two to this, Peter's preparation, uh, but it will be more focused on how the church began to open its arms to the world. And it's such a beautiful thing that's happening that we just read and glance over and don't really realize the significance of what is taking place today. So we're going to read 32 to 10:23. It's a lot of ground to cover. We're not going to walk through it like I normally do verse by verse, but more chunk by chunk, or we're going to be here forever. Um, and, uh, and we're going to examine how God prepared Peter. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open them to chapter 9, Verse 32, and it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lada. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when, she, uh, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Jesus was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he uh, arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter uh, put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. 
And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angels who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And then the next day they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the house about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and, it were, uh, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not a vegan passage. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happens three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, the vision that he had seen, uh, what, what it might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius uh, made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out, asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them. And without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, who is well-spoken by the whole Jew Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send to come to your house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in as his guests. And the next day he arose and went away with some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Okay, that's a lot to chew on there, but don't worry. It all connects together. There's a couple different ways you can break up these verses, but from when I was studying it, this makes the most sense. This natural flow of God preparing Peter for greater ministry. And what we see first is that God used a personal experience to help change Peter's heart attitude towards extending the church to the Gentile world. According to verses 32 to 35 in chapter 9, the first, of the, uh, the first miracle was in town of Lydda, or it's called Lod today. It's actually the site of the modern-day Tel Aviv airport. And it involved a paralytic na man named Aeneas, who had been a quadriplegic for eight years. Just think about it. Aeneas would have been fully familiar with the attendant problems of paralysis. And it wasn't in the world we live in today. Nobody cared. The discomfort, the social restriction, the hygienic difficulties, the emotional depression that came with it. And Aeneas was evidently a believer. He had made acquaintances with Peter. And one day Peter just felt called 
to heal him, saying, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And now you might not feel the power of that verse, but I know the wives do because they've been asking their husbands and teens to make beds for years for no avail, but Peter gets one shot. And the second miracle described in verse 36 to 42 involved a woman who lived in a nearby seaside town of Joppa, which was about 10 miles from uh, Lydda, and her Hebrew name was Tabitha, which meant gazelle and as does her Greek equivalent, Dorcas. And evidently, the na- her, she lived up to this name. She was a godly woman who was graceful and giving of the garments that she would make for the needy. Her busy hands carried out the plans of her loving heart, but suddenly Dorcas became ill, and she died. Hoping for a miracle, the grieving church sent to Lydda for Peter, and they were not disappointed. Peter came with a healing word, a healing prayer, and he said, Tabitha, Arise. And she awoke, and he presented her alive. And these were two wonderful back to back experiences. And we as humans, we love when we have wonderful back to back experiences, a string of good experiences. Nothing builds confidence more when you consistently knock the thing out of the park. It's like a hockey team or any sports team for that matter who's on a winning streak. And it's like nothing can stop them because they keep playing off the high of the last game. And we all wonder, when will this end? because we love good experiences. It makes us excited. It builds our confidence. And these positive experiences that Peter had in chapter 9 became significant factors in shaping Peter's heart and preparing him towards the world because these great successes, the great experiences happened in Gentile settings. Yes, the two miracles were performed Jew to Jew. They were all Jewish there. But the environments of the commercial centers of both the cities were generally Gentile. And if you don't know what Gentile means, that's okay. Gentile just means basically you're not Jewish, right? So we're all here, unless you're Jewish, are Gentiles. And God's power was operative through Peter in this pagan environment. And you might not feel the significance of that, but you have to remember that Jews went to significant, uh, or sorry, were trained to uh, remember that they had to go to uh, specific places to give sacrifices, to worship, and to be in the presence of Yahweh. We see that with Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, right? We go here to worship. You go to Jerusalem to worship. And Jesus says, one day, you know, you can worship wherever you are, essentially, right? And this is what we're seeing right here that the, God was healing people in pagan environments. And that is really interesting because they were, and what also is powerful about these verses is that they not only happened in Jewish or in Gentile context, but they mimicked almost uh, word for word and style by style uh, duplicates of the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels. The healing of Aeneas' paralysis was similar to that of the paralytic at Bethesda, to whom our Savior said, get up, take your bed, and walk, found in John 5.8. Regarding Dorcas's healing, Peter may have learned the procedure from Jesus' raising of Jairus' daughter, recorded in Mark 5, because when Peter arrived, the people were in commotion, and he shoved them out of the room, just as Jesus had done in Jairus' home. The apostles shut them out, just as Jesus. And he said to him, sorry, Peter said to Tabitha, arise, which if you change one letter in the original language, it would be a complete duplicate of Jesus' words 
uh, uh, to Jairus' daughter. He said, Tabitha Kumi, which, you, uh, which in Jesus said, Tabith, uh, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. This is just really, really interesting connections. And all of this taken together had a wonderful softening effect on Peter's prejudice. He was doing Christ's work away from Jerusalem and amid the defiling grit of Gentile culture. Positive experiences can go miles in rearranging our attitudes. Maybe, with the help of the Holy Spirit, for sure. (laughs) But after this final miracle, Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. And this is significant uh, significant because tanners in their place of business were considered an anathema to Jews. And now this isn't tanners like laying on the beach, okay? These are people who are leather workers. And it was, high, it was a highly unpleasant smelling place. Animals were slain there. And tanners were ostracized and had to live outside of town, which is why he's by the lake. According to Old Testament law, Simon should be considered unclean, according to Leviticus 11, 1 to 8 and 24 to 28. And interesting enough, in rabbinical law, stated that if a betrothed woman found out that her fiancé was involved in tanning, she could break off the engagement. That's pretty, it's pretty impressive if you think about the time when women had no power, they were suppressed, but they were given this much power to break off an engagement if they found out their husbands were in this business. That's how repulsive tanners were to Jewish people. But however, Peter found a tanner who, was, uh, who loved Jesus and he was willing to associate with this man. God was at work in this impulsive apostle's heart. The old biases were wearing thin. Peter doesn't know why God has brought him to Simon's house, but he soon will find out. And it's a fitting backdrop that will build towards next week's sermon of what God is about to do by revealing this vision to a or, uh, to Peter. A takeaway from the story is how God works through us despite our prejudice, and he begins to soften our hearts and our preconceived ideas about people, and he begins to remove them. Our love for God and his people and our obedience to his leading and guiding will often bring us to people and places that we would never naturally go. When you begin to live out obedience to Christ. He will take you to spots in Drumheller, to people in Drumheller where you have never thought you would go. It's actually the religious spirit of the church that keeps you from those, that says those places are unworthy to go. But Jesus was called the friends of sinners because he was in those places, amen? And we are called to do the same. So we have seen how God will use personal experiences to prepare us and prepare Peter. And now we see that Peter is changed by a personal revelation, this vision that he has. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian 
cohort, a devout man who feared God and with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So as a a centurion, Cornelius was a non-commissioned officer of the Roman army. He was at home, in the home base. Centurions were not that high-ranking, but they did have some influence. They they worked, they were the backbone of the Roman uh, uh, legion, and they commanded about 300 to 600 men. So he did have some respect and some importance. But what's interesting is that our text says that he was the Italian cohort. And now we need to pick up on these things in the Bible. They're not put there just for little fill-ins. These are important details. His status was a member of the cohort was important because it represented one of the most elite social classes in Rome. The Italian cohort consisted of indigenous Italian officers. As Rome took over conquered people, as they did so well, it also, they also took over their armies. That's how their army kept growing bigger and bigger. And in previous times, Times before this, a conquering army, when they defeated their foe, would just slay the officers right there on the spot. But they followed Alexander the Great's model, which would give the conquering of uh, the conquered army's officers the option to either join the army as officers or be executed on the spot. Now, I don't know about you, that's a pretty easy decision for me. But not all officers were equal. Some officers were conquered people like we just talked about. Others, though, were true Italians. They were Romans. They were born in Rome. They were Romans, and they were Romans from the beginning. And those officers were kind of like in an inner circle. They were given, uh, and given his distinctly Roman name of Cornelius, this was the case here. He was at the very heart of the Roman establishment, a man who occupied a high station in life. This really important Roman figure. And then look what the verse says. Our text says that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God. And he prayed continually to God. That's amazing. A typical Roman would have been exposed to Roman gods such as Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus, and all the other ones that they just felt like adding in that day. But they found, he found that they were not real. There was no substance to them, and they could do nothing for him. As the Old Testament called them, deaf, dumb, you know, and mute. You may have heard the term God-fearer used Maybe in the context, I know, like I was raised and you would hear them like, oh, that person's living life who doesn't fear God. They need a little bit more fear God in their life. Uh, and that's a really general term. It's, it's a right term, but it's a really general term. But when Luke uses this term, he's identifying a specific group of people. This term refers to Gentiles or remember non-Jews who had been drawn to the worship of God of Israel and had come to acknowledge Yahweh as the one true and living God. And they were given some ground, but they were never considered as part of the Jewish nation. And in response to the deep yearnings of the centurion's heart, God met Cornelius in a vision. Verse 3 to 6 says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose whose house is by the sea. 
And this is where the real drama starts. All you who like daytime television, tune in. This is where the drama is. Begins in Acts 10.3. Cornelius, clear as day, sees and hears an angel of the Lord in a vision. And this vision is no hallucination, nor is it a dream. God purposely sends his messenger to Cornelius in this type of vision. In the sight of the angel, when he speaks to Cornelius by name, understandably terrifies him. I get scared when people walk to my office without me hearing them, but this is an angel appearing saying, Cornelius, and the event is reminiscent of Paul on the Damascus road in Acts 9. Even Cornelius' response to the angel when he says, what is it, Lord, is similar to Paul's response of, who are you, Lord? Cornelius' long service as a soldier has trained him to obey. And maybe you wonder why you work in the job you work or why you've had the experiences you've had. But what we see right here is God intentionally using an army uh, officer because he is trained to obey and he immediately summons his trusted servants. He doesn't second guess. He gets a command, he goes. And he sends them to Joppa, obeying the words of the angel to go find Peter as we see in verse seven to eight. And what happens as a result of this is memorable for God is divinely orchestrating this whole thing, everything in his own unique way. Let's keep reading. Acts 10, 9 to 10 says, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to a housetop, the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. I don't know about you, but at those big family Thanksgivings, the first thing I love to do is go outside uh, and take a breath. And this is what Peter's doing. He's escaping to the roof, which was common to do, to get some alone time, to look out at the sea, to reminisce on what has been happening. He's had some really great experiences with these healings. And he's spending time with God and he becomes hungry and he falls into a trance. And this was a bizarre and strange vision that he has. The verses say through eleven sixteen that it was like a great sheet descending from heaven, coming down from the four corners of the earth with animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him that told him to rise and kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And the thing was taken at once to heaven. Among the variety of animals that Peter would have saw were those of approved animals like ox, sheep, doves. But undoubtedly there were swine, perhaps buzzards, an owl, a seagull, reptiles, lobsters, and four-footed winged insects. And all these are listed, interestingly enough, in Leviticus 11. Peter found the picture revolting. And he commanded, and he was commanded to kill and eat. And this shocked him even more than the image that he was seeing because he's always obeyed the basic dietary laws that it was given to his people. And since Peter has never eaten anything that was not kosher, if we want to use modern terms, he balked at such an unholy smorgasbord. And his protest was understandable. In light of his upbringing, any serious Jew would have reacted the same way. But we have to remember that these laws had two purposes. One was a purpose of health. God wanted to keep his people healthy. But the other and the most important purpose was to distinguish Israel as God's people. 
Israel was set apart from other people on earth, not only by what they, how, they, how they worship, but also by what they ate. So this is an identity thing. This is how he identifies as a faithful servant of Yahweh. Following the law was a sign of commitment to the one and living God. Yet Peter sees all kinds of four-footed animals in his vision that include the clean and the unclean. And one thing you shouldn't miss in verse 16 is it tells us that this happened three times. Now with Peter in our mind, what else happens to him three times? He denies Christ three times. Right? He, he denies Jesus three times, and even in this vision, it's three times. And then even after Jesus' resurrection, after they have a fish breakfast for some reason, Jesus recommissions and restores him three times by saying, Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? When something happens three times to Peter, it's a fixed certainty. His denial was underlined by this repetition as well. His restoration and his commission likewise. And now here the repetition displays that there is no mistake and there's no misunderstanding. God's not confused. And what's interesting is you look at this vision and the four corners of, of, of the sheet are, are, are examples of like the four corners of a compass, north, south, east, and west. The sheet's contents indicate uh, the swarming millions that populate the earth. Cornelius, all his soldiers and servants, all the Roman people, all the nations on the face of the earth, all mankind were bound up in this loathsome bundle. And Peter was standing over the sheet surveying them all and spitting out revulsion and rejection. Peter was about to see in living color his cold attitude towards the world. And we'll see that a little bit more next week. Teeming millions were stone blind spiritually, yet Peter's callous reply was by no means Lord. But once he really understands what it's all meant, Peter would never forget this strange vision. And in fact, he speaks about it in just a couple verses, and he again in other epistles. The reason for this reversal amounts to a radical change in the way that God relates to his people. The old ways serve their purpose, but everything they pointed to has been fulfilled. It's not as though God is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's not confused. He's not lying. He's not telling Peter, who is a Jew, that what he's made clean do not call uncommon. God has not changed of mind, nor has he come up with plan B because he doesn't need one because plan A always works. And his unified plan included a time when God's people would eat only certain foods, offer certain sacrifices, and be exclusively marked by circumcision. But that, that part of the plan has been fulfilled. It has come to an end. And some things have to be cleared out of the way so that the people of God the uni- can be unified by Jesus and can fellowship together across the whole world and not be excluded because of circumcision or dietary laws. Some things had to be cleared out. And it's easy to see with Peter's attitude unchecked would have done to the spread of the gospel, would have hindered it. Large areas of the world would have been written off because they were beyond God's grace. All of us who are sitting here in this church would still be without Christ. That's how big of a deal this passage is. Dr. A.H. Dr. H.A. Sorry, Ironside said that when his father died, this passage was running through his father's mind. It was some of the last words he spoke. And he kept repeating on his deathbed, a great sheet and wild beasts 
and, 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 and he starts again, a great sheet and wild, and, and then finally one of his friends lean in and says, it says, in creeping things. And he goes, ah, oh, yes, <laughs> creeping things. That's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in. And all the humor aside, without change in the apostolic attitudes, none of us would have heard the gospel or the love of Jesus Christ if we were considered still unworthy of God's grace. So how does Peter's experience apply to us today? Because there's a lot going on here, but what does it mean to us? And when as I pondered this question, and I thought about this question, I started to think about how we as Christians, too, we write off entire denominations because of our predetermined judgments that we have. We excommunicate Christians because they don't think like we do. And I came across this quote from Alexander White from a sermon delivered to his congregation back in the early 1800s. He's a Scottish minister. He says, all like, uh, sorry, also like ourselves, talking about Peter's response, for how we also bundle up whole nations of men and throw them into the same unclean sheet, whole churches that we know nothing about but their bad names that we have given them are in our sheet of excommunication also. All the other denominations of Christians and our land are common and unclean to us. Every party outside of our own party in the political state also. We have, all, we have no language contemporaneous enough wherewithin to describe their wicked ways and their self-seeking schemes. They are four-footed beasts and creeping things. Indeed, there are very few men alive, and especially those who live near us, who are not sometimes in our sheet of our scorn, unless it is one here and one there of our own family or school or party. They also come under our scorn of our contempt the moment they have a mind of their own, an interest of their own, and affections and ambitions of their own. Wow, we haven't changed much as churches. We too write off whole churches simply by what we've heard about them. We too shut out whole ethnic groups because of bad experiences with one person or family. We too mentally excommunicate those who we do not agree with or they don't agree with us on even secondary issues or another. Our sheets easily fill with educational, racial, cultural, spiritual rejects and we cry, by no means, Lord. They're not my type. And this results in a Christianity that grows solely homogeneous. We then only seek to win our own kind. And thousands never come to grace who, humanly speaking, would have if they were given the chance. The tragedy is compounded when we realize that we can have this unacceptable attitude towards the world as we follow Christ while we're serving his church. Remember, Peter was an apostle. Peter had a relationship with Christ, and he still harbored this unacceptable attitude to this point. You see, we as Christians, we tend to have beautiful attitudes towards God, but lousy attitudes when it comes towards the world. Lousy. 
If we do not respond to Christ's prodding and let him change our heart attitudes, our relationship with people, our community will suffer, and then our relationship with God will as well. And what we see here is that Peter is at a crossroads, but we also have the benefit of time, and we see that he came through beautifully. Let's read as I close us today. 10, 17 to 20, uh, 23 says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken by of the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, just this is pure speculation, but I like to think that the angels must have been watching over Simon's, the tanner's house carefully that night. How would the apostle respond to this heavenly vision? And hallelujah, he responded well. He took a gracious first step and he invited those visitors in who were Gentiles. The Jewish phase of the church is coming to an end and a new attitude is beginning to sweep the church and we're going to see the full inclusion next week. And how, and what we must ask ourselves as we ponder this is how do we see those who are around us? How did Peter see those who are around him now? And how do we see our neighbor and our community? How do we see the people of Drumheller? Do you see them as potential heirs of grace? Or have you written them off in your sheet of scorn? Do you view those who are different from us and who do things we don't approve of as candidates of the kingdom? Or have you written them off? Our attitude makes all the difference. If we're anti-Semitic, we'll never lead a Jew to Christ. If we have written off a relative, he or she may, humanly speaking, be written off for eternity. If we are elitist, most of the rest of the world will never experience grace through us. I love how C.S. Lewis wraps this up. He says, next to the blessed sacrament, to the Lord's table, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Your neighbor is made in the image of the living God. He, is bear, he bears the image of God. Do you believe that? Do you treat them that way? Do you see your neighbor in that light as one who deserves to hear the truth of Christ and potentially bring glory and honor to God through their lives? Or do you tend to operate out of Peter's old way where you wrap them in a sheet of scorn? Peter's attitude changed that day. And to be sure, there's still a lot of rough edges Change happens, but it takes some time. I always say sanctification is a process. It takes some time. And for example, we'll see later in Antioch that Peter regresses a little bit. He's sitting with the Gentiles. Some Jewish brothers come in and he goes, well, I'm going to go <laughs> get away from these guys. Uh, and so he does. He stumbles. He falls a little bit more. But God is working it all out. And what we see is that Peter dies in Rome. 
Peter dies at the center of Gentile power. He never sheltered himself among his people or his homeland again. God changed him, and he can change us. So why not this week take a pen and a piece of paper and make a list of people who you have written off? The ones whom you have said in your heart, by no means, Lord, and stare at that list and let it produce in you a godly sorrow. And when godly sorrow comes, pray that God would change your heart and your attitude towards those people, just as Peter did. But we can't do this alone. It doesn't matter how much we fight or try, we need a heart change. And it's only by his power. So I want to lead us now through, as I close, a prayer of confession. We tell you to confess your sins to one another all the time, but we don't always show you how to confess your sins. So would you, if you're comfortable, to stand with me and agree with me in this prayer of confession. Confession of excommunicating certain people in our, in our town, our neighbors, or just throughout our lives. So let's pray. Oh God, please forgive me for not allowing your great love to flow through me to others for refusing to love and to win those whom I deem dangerous or dirty or unworthy, those who have hurt me or whom I consider beneath me. I confess that I am the worst of sinners. How could anyone be lower than me? Impossible, Lord. May your grace burst through my walls of pride and prejudice, and may your love conquer my selfishness and other sinful rebellions, so that in me, and in them, your name will be extolled and exalted forever. In Jesus' name, amen.